Is anybody Switchfoot fans by chance? Three of us? Okay. That's a Switchfoot song, and I'm a Switchfoot fan. I always like that. I could, we could keep singing it. Man, that's good. Hey, uh, um, thanks so much for coming this morning. I am, as Ryan said, Pastor Tyson, and uh, he mentioned going over to the police academy this week. And so we had, uh, you know, me, Jimmy, uh, Pastor Jimmy and Ryan, and we, you know, Jimmy shared like five words of encouragement to 32 cadets. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience in your life where you're standing around with that many potential police officers, let alone police officers, like the trainers were there, and they all had them circle around. And I had to periodically tell myself, I, I'm, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> right? And they're looking at you. They're like, what's going on? You know? And they've got that police look. I mean, they're trained up. What's wrong? You know, they're, it's almost like you're guilty before you're innocent. Kind of, they're operating that way, right? And we're standing there, and it was like, and you wanted to pray for them, but as you kind of were like slowly walking, you know, backing up from them, it's like, you know what? We, we love you, and we want to, you know, I felt that way. Uh, but it was really exciting. We did get to encourage them, and just we just told them, man, you guys take on a selfless job, and we realize you don't do it for the pass on the back, right? You don't do it for the accolades. And you're called to serve and protect. And we realized that, but we just felt it was important that you guys know, right, as police officers, potential police officers, you're going to lay your lives down. Put it in arm's way for, for us. You need to know that we stand with you and stand behind you as a church. We, we love you. And this, you know, all these big cookies, and they were eyeing the cookies. They were really excited about the cookies um, because I shared just briefly, and I caught a lot of them kind of not looking at me anymore, but staring at the cookies that we had laid out. And I was like, all right, get the hint, all right? It was kind of like that, you know, shut it, Pastor. Let's, uh, let's get to the cookies. You know, anyway, so it was a good time. So he mentioned that. It was really, thank you so much for responding to that and, and, uh, um, and just making some cookies. I think it meant a lot to him. And hopefully that will open some doors down the road. We can do some other stuff over there with him. Uh, this morning, as Ryan mentioned, uh, you read the passage we're going we're gonna to study out of, a Philipp- not Second Philippians. Um, we're going to study in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible there, or your finger in your Bible like I do, uh, keep it there. We'll get there in a sec. Uh, we're in a series called Who We Are. And some people have kind of voiced, why are we doing this? We know who we are, right? <laughs> or maybe didn't quite say that. That's unfair of me to do that. But some people have said, uh, you know, why are we going through this as a church? And we feel as, as pastors um, that it's important um, because the church is us, right? It's you, it's you and I. And, and uh, here's are things that makes SFC kind of, I wouldn't say unique because all these concepts are biblical, right? What we're doing is following the Bible, right? I mean, you would hope so, right? Yes, that's good, Tyson. It's a pastor you fall in the Bible. But it's, we think it's important that you come with us on this journey um, of giving ourselves away, of doing community together, of realizing that the Word of God is real and relevant, um, right? of being the church. All these elements we talk about, it includes you. And part of it is for you to understand, hey, I, I can trust the leadership. I know they love God. They're teaching good theology, all those things. But also it's a place where on a Sunday morning you can, you can trust that you can bring others if that makes sense, where you know, hey, when I come, when I bring my friends, unsafe friends or friends, coworkers, whatever, they come to a church that <clears throat> loves Jesus, right? And you'll hear me say, if, if you have a hard time with Jesus, you're going to have a hard time here, right? You're not going to like us too much. Uh, and we like the Bible. So that's part of the reasoning behind who we are. So up until this point, we've covered the first one. One of our elders, uh, Bill Carson, started off with real and relevant. And we believe, right, the Bible is, is real. And what we mean by that is kind of the the rawness of our sinful life, right? Have you heard that statement where the, the foot of the cross is level? You've never heard that? Man, I, there's these moments, right? 
Maybe it's growing up in California. I don't know. I would think, all right, so there's this saying. <laughs> Let's just go with that. I'm going to make this saying up right now. You're like, Tyson made this saying. If the foot of the cross is level. What that means is that every single one of us is in need of Jesus. Okay? Uh, all our ugliness, all our, our you know, the, the, where the rubber meets the road, the depths of our sin, we believe Jesus can meet that need. Okay? That's what we mean by real. <laughs> all the ugliness of our sin. It's relative because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every person on the globe. doesn't matter the color of your skin, how much finances you have in the bank doesn't matter where you live. We believe the gospel is relative to who you are because without Jesus, you are separate from God. Okay, so that's what we mean by that. And then the next week, I think it was Ryan, our director, who uh, just shared. He talked about doing life together. You're not, you're not meant to, to live on an island. You're meant to share your life, right? And it's a two-way road. Sometimes you, you have that opportunity to invest and pour into others. And we walk away from those moments really in, you know, encouraged. But there's times where we need people to, to invest in us. And uh, God designed us this way to need one another, right? Don't forsake the assembling of the church, but, but the, the, the component of coming together. And Ryan talked out of Acts. I think it was the early church, right? We saw them give themselves to fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread, communion, prayer, doctrine, those things. And then last week was Pastor Jim, and he shared about the church. You are the church, right? And uh, even though we assemble here on a Sunday morning and we use this building, this building is not the church. You are the church. And, and our desire is that wherever you go, uh, you would be the church to those around you. And he talked about different elements of what it means to be a part of this community. Okay, that was the, uh, that's about what I got out of them. Did you guys get anything different? No. <laughs> I fast-tracked you through that. And this morning we're going to talk about giving ourselves away. And it's going to tie, there's going to be some parallels to what uh, Pastor Jimmy mentioned last week. But um, here's this passage in Philippians. And I just kind of want to walk you through it. And by the way, we cover these in our, our, uh, uh, our membership class. If you haven't... Um, you want to become a member of SFC, we go through these core doctrines and a bunch of other things, who we are. The next one coming up is February 21st. If you want to mark your calendars or shoot me an email, and I'll get you on the calendar for that because I teach that. Um, so here we are. This morning we're talking about giving ourselves away. And as Americans, you know, sometimes that's just not the, the easiest thing. Just our upbringing and our environment, we are made to be individuals, right? We're in a society that is individualistic, about success, about uh, climbing the corporate ladder, if you will, about all these things. And there's elements of the Christian faith, right, that goes just in the face of that. And Paul's going to hit on some things. And he's not saying those things are bad. He's not saying that you shouldn't look out for yourself. The, the verse 4 mentions that. Um, but that we have to get to this point where we realize we've got to give ourselves away. So, so Paul comes and he writes this letter. And if you notice on the verse, yes, there it is, it begins with the word, therefore. Right? So anytime you come to the Bible and you see the word therefore, you should say, why is the word therefore therefore? Right? And so what is Paul? He's, he's concluding an argument when he goes into this passage. And just to walk you briefly, this is Paul's last letter of his life. He is literally in chains in prison. Okay, up until this point, he's been shipwrecked. He's been beat. He's been stoned. He's been lashed. He's been ridiculed. Um, right? He probably doesn't smell good. probably doesn't look that good. Right? No Kaiser Permanente back in those days. Right? And he's in this prison. And he has a strong love and affection for the Philippian church, these saints. And he writes his letter to them. Right? So he gets up and he talks about some of the, and if you're familiar with the book, some of these, these, these well, I've heard that before, the, will, will come out of Philippians. There's a lot of great things. Often you'll hear out of my, my uh, on Sunday mornings, they'll talk about he began a good work. Right? He'll be faithful to complete until the day of Christ. Well, it's Philippians 1.6. We see it in here. So he kind of goes through his letter. And just briefly, I'm going to walk you up to why the therefore is therefore before we get into this passage. 
So Paul is in prison. He's going through a, a, um, probably re-looking at his life, probably evaluating it, seeing where it's at. He has a great love and appreciation for the Philippian church, as I mentioned. Uh, there's a mutual love. The Philippians love Paul as well. And you'll see the idea of joy, right? My joy is riddled through this book. So he goes into this idea of thankfulness for prayer. He talks about Christ being preached, right? All this suffering that I've enduring, he's writing to this Philippian church, I've endured for the gospel. And, and Paul becomes this powerful illustration of what it means to give your life away. Because literally he's saying, it doesn't matter to me if, as long as Christ is preached. And he has people out there who are preaching out of the wrong motive. They're trying to stir up problems for Paul. Right? So he's in prison for the gospel's sake, and, and people want to extinguish anything that has to do with Christianity. And so there are people out preaching about Jesus, right? just to make problems for Paul. And Paul's like, I, you know, I don't care. I love the fact that as long as Jesus is preached, so he's all about gospel focus. Then he goes into some verses where he talks, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Maybe you're familiar with that. So he's literally evaluating his life, and he's coming to this point where he's saying, you know what, I may not make it any, any longer, and I much would much rather, guys, go and be with Jesus. That's better by far. And he says this in chapter 1. This is a better thing. But then he turns around once again, and he's thinking about others. And he says, well, what is better? I don't know which is better. I'd much rather be with Jesus, but if I stay, I can help you guys. And so he decides, you know, he goes, man, I'd like to check out, right? I'd love to go be with Jesus, um, but I'm going to stay because it's better for you. Here's a guy, again, look at his life. Look what he's gone through, right? Shipwreck, all this stuff, stone, beaten, ridicule, I mean, all of it. You can see him going, yeah, I'm kind of done. I'd like to leave now. But no, I want to, he wants to stick around. And he goes on, and he goes into verse, uh, verses, builds to verse 29, where he's talking about this mutual concern we have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says these words, and this is in, uh, if you have your Bibles, I didn't put it up on the screen. Uh, in verse 29 of chapter 1, so he says, for, it, uh, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Right? So Paul said, hey, we have this mutual affection. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes around and he says, right? Some of us probably don't want to hear this this morning because he's speaking. God is speaking to us. It has been granted to you and I to not only believe on Jesus, right? Not only to know him as our Lord and Savior, but also we get to suffer for him. And everyone said, amen, right? That's something we don't, we don't attach with. And so Paul says those words, and then he goes into chapter 2. Therefore, right, here's his conclusion. If you and I, and he's speaking to believers, if you and I have crossed that line of faith and we said, you know what, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I want to believe on him. I want to follow him. I love all the benefits, right, the knowing, the security I have at night. When I lay my head on my pillow, when I go to sleep, I know God holds my hand. I have the confidence, right, when Jesus says, whom the Father gives me, none will be plucked from my hand. I'm that person. I'm the one right in between his pinky and his middle. I'm right there, right? And we have that, that confidence he gives us. But the other side of it is how do we live this out? Because this is what we're going to talk about as a church. We believe this is one of our signature themes, giving yourself away. You've got to give yourself away. So Paul says, therefore, right? And he lists in, in this, this, this verse. And I'm going to focus on the first four verses because Paul's going to begin with Jesus and he's going to conclude with Jesus. 
right? And it's, it's going to be one of those messages, if Jesus doesn't get you going, uh, we might want to evaluate if we have him or not. All right, so then he begins. Therefore, and his big argument, number one, is if you're found in him. And that's the point. I think I said that right, right? You can write that in your notes. If, right? It's an if-then statement. <clears throat> he says in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any af- affection and mercy. So Paul's going to list these things out, right? So you and I are on the same page. We're tracking. Yes, I get it. It's been granted to me not only to believe on Jesus, but to suffer for his name. So Paul goes, all right, therefore, since we're all on the same page, everyone, brothers and sisters, here's what, what God wants and desires of you. And he begins by explaining what actually you have, right? It's important if, and he says, the first one, right, if you are in him, he says, in Christ. That's the, you can write that in. Some of you aren't writing. It's bothering me. I'm just be, I'll be like, remember, right? If you're in Christ. So what does he mean by in Christ? I love, um, there's a book by Jerry Bridges where I got this from, The Great Exchange. Totally swiped it from Jerry Bridges. Great book. You should read it. The Great Exchange. What happens when, when Paul mentions when you are in Christ? He's talking about this great exchange. When we come to the cross, that moment of salvation where you give to Jesus, right? You impute, the theological term, all our sins, all our brokenness, all our guilt, all our shame, all of it, the whole mess, we give it to Jesus. And Jesus imputes to us his perfect righteousness. So at that moment of salvation, this is the great exchange. So that moment, right, when, you, when the forensic word, we use the word justification, you'll hear that through the Bible, and it's forensic. It's like a court of law where God is saying, who's going to buy these wretched, disgusting sinners you and I, right? And Jesus is saying, I, I give him my blood, and, and God drops the gavel. Yes, that is enough, right? And at that, that moment, you and I are saved. We believe on Jesus. And there's a lot of discussion, whether sanctification, that's another theological term that creeps in there. And all that means is you're cleansed. You're completely whole. So God looks down at you, and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, and you stand in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. You are a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. Right? And all that stuff, all that garbage, all that junk is gone because Jesus dealt with it at the cross. And so we have this, this picture, and Paul is beginning saying, hey, this is it. If, right? Therefore, you're going to suffer for him. You've got to know what this thing's about. If you are in Christ. Just stop for a moment and think about that, what that means. There is a hope for us that the world cannot give you. There is a peace for all believers, right? The world desperately wants that will turn, turn from Jesus. Paul's saying, you're in him. You're found in him. In him we move and live and have our being. We're in Christ. And so we see the second person of the Trinity at work, right? He went to the cross for our sins. And the second thing Paul lists is if there's any love, Right? So the one the filling is experience God's love. You know, so love, the word here, the Greek word is, is agape. Some of you are familiar with that. It's a sacrificial love. So Paul begins with first by saying, hey, if you're in him, it's what it means. You have Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. You are experiencing. I use it in the present tense, not past tense or future. Present tense. We have experienced God's love. If you've believed on Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you've experienced God's love. And you are currently experiencing God's love. Each and every day, we experience, we rest in God's love. How do we know God loves us? For God so loved, right, it's that one verse. 
the world. What did he do? Right? He went to action. I'm going to give my one and only begotten son that whoever does what? Believes. Right? Moment of salvation. We believe on Christ. We'll be saved. So God loves us, and he demonstrates his love for us in Jesus. This is how 1 John, if you look at like John 3.16, for God's love the world, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Right? So the second, the first person of the Trinity, we use the word Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And Paul is building upon this action of the Trinity at work in your life. Beginning with the second person, Jesus. You are, you are found in him that moment we have believed on Jesus. second one is experiencing God's love. Right? God so loves you. Each and every one of you. You have to see the realization. It's almost like this moment where you have to look into God's eyes and realize that he loves you. Because, Paul, this is all the if statement. If. If you understand God's love, it pushes us towards action, the correct action. So we experience God's love. The third one is what? A mutual. No, excuse me, that's the fourth one. Woven into by the Holy Spirit. So into community. Right? If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. I love, you know, Thanksgiving is always one of those times where, uh, Families get together. It seems like the one time we get together. And, it's, it, you know, I love Thanksgiving. <clears throat> but you always hear stories about the family that, you know, gets together on Thanksgiving, and there's always the crazy uncle that comes. Some of you are like, no, it's a crazy aunt, Tyson. You have no idea. Right? There's always that one crazy family person. Has anyone ever experienced that? Four of us now. All right. Yeah. Someone's like, oh, you have no idea. When families get together, right, there's always that one, got to love them, right? We got to love them because they're family, because they're family, right? I may not like them right now. I don't like that one at all. Uh, down even side, I love them. And it's like in, in this, this idea of community right now as we are communities. We're sitting here together. New, you know, none of us chose that this person sitting next to me would be here, right? But we have an opportunity to love one another. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, weaving us together. And there's this element of fellowship, not just fellowship of getting together and right, having cookies, which is good, which police officers, which is scary. Um, there's fellowship more than the sense of sharing our lives, right? Interacting with the Spirit. You know, being in, the, in a position where, you know, I'm going to work through this. I'm not going to check out. Because you're more than just the person sitting next to me. You're redeemed by the Savior, right? The God of this world. So we had this moment. So Paul, right, he begins his, his Abe, you're going to suffer for him. You're going to know what this whole thing is about. If you're in Jesus, you've had this moment. Man, I have believed on Christ, my Lord and Savior. I am, have experienced and, and continue to experience God's love for me, that I'm not a mistake. I'm not some accident, right? There is value and purpose in me if he would pay this big price. I am experiencing God's love. I know he loves me. He has demonstrated it over and over again. And the more I open the Bible, the more I begin to see God loves me. Right? He loves me. He loves us all equally. He doesn't show favoritism. He loves us. And then he's at work in my life. The fellowship of the Spirit is the molding and shaping and bringing us together. We're all unique. We come from different backgrounds and different places. But he brings us together and we can share our lives. And this kind of touches on what Ryan mentioned a few weeks ago about community, about coming together. Right? Touching one another and sharing our lives. And the Spirit is at work in the midst of that. So Paul uses the Trinity at the beginning, the, all three persons of the Trinity saying this. When you get to this point of giving your life away, you've got to understand that God is at work in you in a most and profound, powerful way. 
That at the end of the day, when you get to that moment where the rubber meets the road and I'm called to give my life away, I'm called to suffer, it's not going to make a lot of sense unless I really, truly understand what I have in Jesus. It's pretty profound. It's the most powerful motivator ever. And then Paul goes from there. Remember we talked earlier about this, this love for one another. Right? He, he loves this Philippian church. He loves them. They love him. Which is not always the case when Paul and Paul went to, to places, right? But here they love him. And so he goes on and he says, guys, on a personal note, if there's any affection, if there's any mercy. And this is the idea of mutual affection and mercy. So he not only appeals that the Trinity is at work in your life, but he says, hey, there's a brother and sister in Christ that you know has encouraged you, right? Like Paul is telling them, we love each other, right? A mutual there's affection for me and I for you. And there's mercy upon one another. He adds the personal element in it. And to me, it's like at this moment where you're going, man, it seems like he's got enough. Like he's kind of covered it, right? But he makes it personal. He weaves it right into the idea that if you know someone physically right now in your life who has done something, an act of mercy in your life, it becomes part of the motivation. You see, you and I, this morning, sitting here and and singing these great songs about who Jesus is and the work he's doing in us and the hearing of his word, there has been someone in our life, whether we know them or not, who has given themselves away, who has taken the time to explain the Bible, who's taken the time to say, this is what this whole thing's about. They're not a bunch of crazy people that meet together on a Sunday, right? It's about forgiveness, and it's about love, and it's about justification, about being saved. It's about living a new life, and it's about impacting with the world with good things. This is what it's about. And think about it. Think about your own testimony for a moment. How many people are maybe a specific person who's given themselves away? Because Paul is saying, look, they're not all going to head to prison. Sometimes we get this idea that, well, if I'm going to give myself away, it means I've got to sell all my goods. And i got to go to the other side of the world, like Beth Ann and Barry eventually here. Right? No. Paul said, hey, when he goes on, don't look out just for your own interests. He realizes that you have to exist. He expects you in your workplace, in your environment, in your home, where you go, your sphere of influence. He expects you to start giving yourself away in those areas. You're not called to, to, to I mean, you might be called. I don't want to say never say never. I learned that with God, right? Don't ever say, God. I never want to do this. I told God I never wanted to be a youth pastor. Right out of ministry. Guess what I was? Yeah. 30-hour famines, lock-ins. Get me. Right? Youth pastor, that's a whole special calling, right? It's like children's ministry. No. No. Right? Don't ever do that. So if God's challenging in that way, I don't want to be the one saying he's not. I'm just saying that this is where he wants. Where are you at? Where you exist? Your influence. He wants you to start giving yourself away. And so he builds his argument. Guys, therefore, we're called not only just to believe in him. It's granted us to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior, and and we're going to suffer for him. So he goes and he builds his, his argument, right? The if. If you're in Christ, you're experiencing God's love. If you've been woven in a community, the Holy Spirit, right, the Trinity at work in you, and, there's, and even beyond that, if there's some type of element of mercy and affection that we have for each other, our brother or sister in Christ, even if there's that, then he goes into then, right? If, then. And the feeling you want there is um, live your faith. 
right? If you're in Christ, if you're in him, live your faith. He says these verses, and I'm going to read these. Verse 2, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. So for Paul, the plan, the Christian ethic for Paul is in two phases. Phase may not be the best word, but two parts, right? First part is an inward motivation. Paul in verse 2, I'm going to read that again. He says, fulfill my joy, is our word, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. Paul is assuming that you and I aren't naturally going to be able to give ourselves away. He's assuming that because he's built, right, man, with with what we have in Jesus, what we have in God is should be enough. And if there's mutual respect and love for each other, he kind of says, okay, if this is and you've got it, uh, I want you to, to be of the same mind. And he goes on and talks about, in verse 5, about the mind of Christ. And so he's getting this idea that, that there's an assumption. You're, you're not naturally going to want to do this. We're not going to naturally want to go suffer. That's just not something where you're like, yes. Can I have a, you know, a plate of suffering and an extra dose of whatever? Right? We don't naturally want that. But he does. He goes into this idea of motive. It's important for Paul to say, hey, you know, check your inward motivation. Why are you doing this? Because we go back to chapter 1 where Paul's saying, I don't, the motive to stir up trouble for me, I don't care because they're preaching Jesus, right? But here he's saying, as you live out your life, as you begin to suffer for Jesus, and just making a stand. And it doesn't even have to be like suffering, like we're going to go out and get whipped. We're, we're talking about here in America, right? We're talking about maybe someone making a joke out of us or something. We're just talking about it, it, respecting others and loving others. But he's saying when you go out and do this, it's important that you have the right motivation. You know, this is the biggest, I think, one of the big things for pastors. Right? When you get up on stage and you preach and, and you teach, and, and if our motivation isn't to, to truly present the word of God, if we're doing it for the pats on the back, then we're missing it. We're reading a, a story from Chuck Swindoll. He's talking about going to Chuck Swindoll, right? Prince of preachers in my mind. He went to a, a conference with a bunch of other pastors, big name pastors, you know, book writing pastors and, and uh, doing this conference. And he did not mention the guy's name, but he, he spoke very poorly of one gentleman who was a pastor. Could not believe this man was in ministry. All the conversations we had with him, now, you know, gravitated to him Right about his books, what he's doing, because it was just—it was almost ridiculous, to the point where Chuck Swindoll said, "I wanted to short sheet his bed at night, just to see what he would do and how he'd react." You know, that's that fear, right? Women, it's not a fear, but it's something that we have to keep in check. Is our motivation? You see, in the Old Testament, we had the law, and the law was about checking boxes. That's what the Pharisees did. All right, did I do this? I checked the box. Check the box. Check the box. Let's do the law. Paul brings it right into the New Testament. Jesus fulfills the law, right, in the New Testament. He becomes our prophet and priest and king. And he tells us, right, what he desires. And, and Paul picks up on that and he says, man, you're, you're now at a law of Christ. Now the motivation for why you go about doing this is so much more important. We're not trying to earn it. He, what he's saying is you don't, you don't, you know, it's not a box. I'm going to suffer for Jesus today. Check. That's, you're missing it. He would say we get to suffer for Jesus. 
the same attitude as the disciples, right? When they, they were called in before the Sanhedrin and said, hey, don't preach in Jesus' name ever again. They decided they weren't going to kill him. They're going to whip him. What did the disciples do? They went out rejoicing. We were found worthy to suffer for his name. So Paul hits on this idea of motivation. Have the same mind. Have you ever heard that? Watch the movie Miracle. Has anyone seen that movie Miracle about the 1984? Uh, yes. I was alive when that happened. I'm sure you figured that out. Um, I remember watching it, and it was about the 1984 hockey team, for those of you who don't know, the Olympics. Is everyone still with me on that one? And it was like this great moment in sports history, right? And it takes from Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles when, it, when they win the game against the Russians? But there's this scene in the movie and, and, uh, where they, I think they're playing, they're not in the Olympics yet, and, and they're playing some national team, and they tie them. And through the game, there's a few players that were like looking in the stands, looking at girls, like, oh, there's all these college kids, right? Look at these girls, and, and man, it sets the coach. His name's Herb Brooks. Just makes him livid. He's upset, right? And so he tells the assistant coach, go get a whistle. End of the game. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've done this once on a soccer team where the coach was so upset with the team. While the other team won and was walking off, we got on the line and we're running. Sprints, right? So this is what he has them do. <laughs> he has them get on the line. They're all in their full gear, USA gear, right? And there's, they skate to the blue line and back, blue line, blow the whistle. They go until the lights are shut off in this arena. And the guy wants to go home, and he's like, lock, you know, just lock the door. We'll, we'll leave when we're ready. And he keeps them skating. I mean, it, they skated until I think they threw up. And I think they got some of the actors actually to that point. That's just trivia. I think they, they had them do it so many times they were close to throwing up, which makes great cinema, right? Is this guy throwing up? Film that, right? And, and so periodically, as they were coming together, because he realized he's got a bunch of college kids from a bunch of different schools. We've got to make a team out of them. So periodically, he'd ask this question of them. You know, what's your name? It's like an introduction as they were out practicing, and, and the kid would, you know, rattle off his name. And then he would say, you know, where are you from? And the kid would say where he grew up. And then he would ask, who do you play for? And the kids would in, instinctively mention their university, their college. And so he had this moment where he was sick and tired of these guys playing for the name on the back of their jersey and not playing for the bigger picture, right? And so he was trying to force them, force them, I guess it's safe to say, right? They're skating back and forth, and it's going late in the evening. Finally, one of the kids yells out his name, Mike Rosione, right? He becomes the team captain, actually. And uh, he asks him, where are you from? And he's like, from Boston, Massachusetts. And then he says, who do you play for? And the kid finally gets it, right? The team finally gets it. I play for the United States of America. And it's this moment, this teaching moment for them. And then he walks off the ice. That's enough, boys. And he walks off the ice. And they skated. They did these down and backs. If you've ever played sports, I mean, you know the down and back. I don't care what sport you play. There's always some mean coach out there that makes you do it, right? And then you're smiling half the time, blowing the whistle, <laughs> right? And, and there's this moment, but they finally get it. We live for something. We play for something so much bigger. In our spiritual life, Paul is getting at this idea. Check your motivation. Are you in this for the pats on the back? At the end of the day, do you want, you know, it's this idea. If, 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 are you sitting on the throne of your life or is Christ there? Because if Christ, if you know him, right, he should be dwelling there. He should be most important. He should take residence. He should be the one directing me on what, what I should and should not do. So it's very important for Paul, very important for us. It's very important to the Christian faith. Hey, don't do this for yourself. Do this because Christ might be glorified, that others might come to know him, because it's not about us. 
right? Paul continually was pointing people to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Point to Jesus. He's doing it again. It's all about Jesus. And you and I, he wants to see us get to this place where we say, yeah, it's about Jesus. So the first part of this idea of, of the then, living your faith, first one is check your motivation, right? Take your pride. He hits on that in verse, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, right? So there's the, 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 the idea, the battle you and I face. Who's on, the, who's on the throne of my life, right? Some days we do good. Some days it's bad. We've got to check it. Bring it back. Wait a minute. Let me get check it. It's not something we do once and go, I'm good. This is a continual, you know, continuation. Every day, reevaluating who's on the throne, who's on the room, why am I doing this? What's the motivation behind this? And then he goes on to the last part here where he says in verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done. This is the action, uh, selfish ambition, and he goes to the outward expression, right? So the then for, for Paul is, is inward motivation moves to outward expression. And he goes and he says, nothing. Get down to selfish. Don't do it for yourself. Don't do it with conceit, contrast, but, right, in lowliness of mind. Let each of you esteem, let each of you respect others. Why is that important? We begin to put value because God puts tremendous value upon people. The three eternals in life are God, his word, and people. And Paul is saying as you live out your life in your sphere, yeah, give, give importance to people because they're eternal and God loves them. He says, let each of you not look only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. So here's this idea, right? Don't, don't just, you're not called to, to give it all away. He realizes you have to look out for your own interests. You have to make a career. You have to provide for your family. You're commit, you got to do this. It's important. He says, but in the process of doing that, don't neglect those around you. Be mindful. Be thinking of those things, right? Be tracking it. This is the outward expression of the Christian faith. And then he goes on and he says, let this mind, right? These are the verses of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but contrast, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, which is a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, right, conclusion, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow on those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He begins with Jesus. He closes with Jesus. He's saying, consider what Jesus has done for you. Let this be another powerful motivator for how you live out your life. God has tremendous value for you. You are not an accident. And there's something he wants to do through your life. You have the ability and the influence to go where you, right, where you exist, where you work, where you live, to shine a light and to change lives. That's pretty awesome. And he's saying, consider Jesus, right? What did he do? He became a slave. He left the glory behind, right, and came down to this earth, lived a perfect life. What did we do, right? We nailed him to the cross as sinners. And because of that, right, we become saved. He humbled himself. So here comes this motivation. Paul begins with Jesus. He ends with Jesus. You know, when I was in, in Bible college, I had, a, I had to take a class. It was called pastoral leadership. And it was taught by a man. Oh, my goodness. It was taught by a man uh, named Robert Douglas. I'll close with this. And uh, he was the most intense guy I've ever met in my life. I've never, I don't know if you've ever met an intense guy where it looks like they're staring at your soul when they look at you. Has anyone had that? Okay, this is pastoral leadership class. And he was the type of guy in the class. It was a three-hour class. 
And it was like the class started at one, he would go boom, right? And he did a pop quiz. He didn't even introduce himself. We had a pop quiz day one. And his first question was, write out Philippians 3, 10 and 11, right? You can use your Bibles. The only time you use your Bibles, hint, hint. I'm going to ask this question again. And we wrote it out, right? I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship, and sharing in his sufferings, come like in his death, and so somehow tame to the resurrection of the dead. Then he goes, next question. What does that mean? Right? And so we're like the typical bunch of guys in the past. We're going to become pastors. All right. So I threw out my methodology. I used all the biggest words that I knew. Here's my hermeneutic. And right? I had a little Greek under me at that point. And parsed some verbs out. And boom. Right? And it is. Good. Good job. Right? Next class meeting. Pop quiz. I mean, it was like, pop quiz. What is Philippians 3, 10, 11? I'm like, good Lord, man. I, you know, all right. Wrote it out. And what does it mean? Second question. All the way. To the end of the final. First question on the final. Right? So this is the NIV. This is how I have it memorized. I want to know Christ, the power of resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, become like him his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. I was using NIV in Bible college and memorized it that way. Second question, what does it mean? What was he getting at? It's this idea of, of moving from right, this sterile answer to I want to know him. In the process of the semester, I know what you're thinking. Tyson, you're a slow learner. Yes. Right? Got to the final and it dawns on me. He's not asking for the, like this hermeneutical, exegetical answer. He wants me as a pastor. Hey, it's important for your ministry as you go forward that you know him. That you know him. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Become like him in his death. What was Jesus like in his death? Obedient. Right? To the cross. And so this whole if is rooted on you knowing him. You have to know him because it won't make sense to give your life away. 